how long will your data last, deciphering the cryptic codes on memory sticks, saving printheads, speeding up old machines, and more, all coming up on Tech Thing. Tech Thing is brought to you by viewers like you. Please visit us at patreon.com slash techthing to contribute and see our milestone goals. Thank you so much for your support. I'm Shannon Morse. And I'm Patrick Norton. And this is Tech Thing, where we make technology behave. At least on the good days. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. So, petabytes of data, far beyond anything anybody expected. The Ooh. last SSD standing in the tech reports, SSD torture test is dead. 18 months ago, Jeff Gassier over at the tech report started the SSD torture test. Six drives writing over and over to the death, testing limited write tolerance inherent to all NAND flash memory. Corsair's Neutron GTX 240, Gigabyte's Intel's 335, Kingston's HyperX, Samsung's 840, and 840 Pro. Um, first lesson is pretty crazy. It's, it's one... Let, I mean, let's talk about this for a okay. second. The first let's lesson talk. they came up with, quote, all of the drives surpass their official endurance specifications by writing hundreds of terabytes without issue. Here's the deal. Most of us will write a few terabytes a year. Now, yeah. if you video edit and you're, like, churning through you you're know, gonna do five a lot terabytes more. a week, that's a lot more than the average human. Mm -hmm. All of them issued smart warnings before their deaths. Uh, and, and I'm quoting here, and quote, um, it was like after 2.5 petabytes, two of them were still standing. So wow. if you're wondering which lasted the longest, go to techreport.com, read the article. There's an introduction to it. There's sort of updates as you go along. We've been talking about this on Twitch a lot over the last couple of years. This is an amazing, amazing piece of research. Props to Jeff. Props to techreport.com. Um, I'm know. so glad they did this. This was really, really interesting. The entire article, it's very long, but yes. it's worth a read. Yeah, and the, if you read the whole series, it gets pretty crazy because yeah. it explains what's <laughs> going on, what fails on the drives, how they fail, whether they're catastrophic failures or smaller failures over time. This was a small sample. There was one each of six different drives, but the, the key thing for me is that they all lasted well beyond beyond this is a sophisticated technological <laughs> term, well beyond their warranty wow. period. That's impressive. I thought it was really cool. Good job, everybody. Yay. Way to go, lasting through your warranty. But some of them <laughs> lasted much longer than others. Yeah. And whether that's one specific drive or that entire series of drives would require additional testing involving lots more drives and a much larger Ooh. pool. And you know what? Leave Tech Report alone. They've been busting their humps. Thank you, Jeff. Yes, they it's been have. Really amazing yes, to watch. Thank you, guys. Series. And speaking of drives and longevity, <laughs> at KenGenSef tweets. If I had, if I backed up data to a hard drive and then unplugged it and stored it somewhere, how long could it sit and still work? He says he's looking to store one to two terabytes of Lightroom mm -hmm. images. He wants to back up to a hard drive and then store it away, maybe to access now and again if needed. So, That's a good question. Yeah, welcome to the world of cold storage. One and two. <laughs> there may be a follow-up email Wait, to this do that you mean, was like frozen storage. Close. Cold is in not connected to a NAS or a computer oh. or a server, right? <laughs> so you know, cold storage is really cool because a lot of stuff. Let's say, like, a friend of mine makes videos, right? Okay. And he finishes Desert People Seven, and he's got all the elements for Desert People Seven, all the hundreds of hours of video he's captured, all the pictures and stuff, and yeah. they all go on a drive. And he finishes editing, and the drive gets put. In the case, the case goes on a shelf. Cool. The concern is always where that shelf is and what are oh, the conditions yeah. there, right? There's a reason museums and data storage facilities closely monitor temperature and humidity. They want to avoid big temperature swings and dun 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 condensation. <laughs> Moisture plus hard drive equals premature death, right? Oh, really? Well, you laugh. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about like it's even true, like though. dunking it. I know some people who had they had right. basements and they had hard drives down there, and then it flooded. Right. So. 
there's issues there. It sounds silly, right? Or uh, there, I have a, a storage unit, which is essentially a container that sits in a field of gravel, right? With, right? Along with a whole bunch of other containers. But the sun comes down. I've measured temperatures upwards of 104 degrees on an 80 degree day oh. inside the trailer. And then it drops down to 60 degrees at night. And of oh. course, we're next to a bunch of water. So the air is moist anyway. And there's condensation a lot if you don't use some sort of drying thing. So, you know, having like that drive in a in a sack with a in a sack in a Ziploc bag with a dry bag in a storage container in an air conditioned and temperate temperate part of your room. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a bigger problem if you live in you know, the swamps in Louisiana than yes. if you live in the desert. Getting all of that behind us, in theory, it could take decades for the magnetic data on the drive to fade. Our friend uh, Alan Malventano, PCPER's uh, storage maven, added, quote, assuming good environment, the limit is likely the bearings seizing because the oil's dry. Uh, spin them up every few years. Oh, good point. He also recommends multiple copies, preferably with at least one off-site. Like we always tell you, yes. right? Three, two, one. Ideally, three copies in two different locations. Three copies, two different mediums, at least one at a different location. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'd also add that somewhere around the three to five mark, you might want to transfer those files to a new media or a new drive. Not so much because of the quality of the bits on the platter, but because at some point you're going to go, oh, Where'd that IDE, where'd that SATA, <laughs> where'd that 1394, where'd that SCSI cable reader board card disappear to? Oh, so and then true. suddenly you're on eBay, right? Nothing yeah. sucks worse than being pretty sure the photos are on a drive if you could just get a working 10-year-old machine with an ISA card slot and an Ethernet so you can connect that 486 to the Ethernet to take seven to nine days to transfer the you know eight <laughs> gigabytes of eight gigabytes, eight megabytes for a 486 of files off. Sounds ridiculous, but over time, like, you know, think about it. If you have a Mac. In the last like five years, you've gone from like USB 2.0 to Lightning to USB 3.0 yeah. to USB C. C. <laughs> right? Okay, so you're like, that's okay. I can transfer into an external drive. Great. I have external drives that the external enclosures are no longer particularly useful because I don't have a 1394 adapter in any machine I own. Can I still buy a 1394 adapter? Yes. Will I still be able to buy a 1394 adapter in five years? Maybe, but it might involve going to eBay and finding three or four of them before I find one that works. So do yourself a favor. Keep migrating that media. Take a look at a, at a large offsite backup storage system if you can afford it, because a lot of them are unlimited. Oh, yeah. You know, and you might solve a lot of your problems, but then you get into the whole thing, like, what if the files are like 800 gigabytes mm -hmm. and you need them, like, in less than a week? I'm not going to get into that right now. What I am going to get into, though, is what's going on over at Hack5. I'm Darren Kitchen, I host Hack 5 with Shannon here in the same building, and this week Shannon is setting up printers with Raspberry Pis using Google Cloud Print. It's so cool, you can print from anywhere in the world. You can check it out over on the sister show right here, hack5.org. Time for a rapid fire round. Three questions we're asking about upgrading your tech. Actually, two questions about speeding up older tech, and one question or response about keeping your printer alive. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. One, Sim posts on Facebook.com slash tech thing. Hello, I love your new show. I have a Mac Pro 2008 desktop computer. What do I need to run the latest Mac operating system? I have the Xeon processor, but no memory and no hard drive. Thanks, Sim. Uh, first off, you'll need two gigs of memory yeah. and at least eight gigs of storage. 
So you'll need a hard disk drive or a solid state drive, definitely. Okay. And so you, you should run a lot more, at least eight yes, gigabytes yes. of RAM. You really, really should. Yeah. So luckily, Apple does make it super easy for us. They have a whole website where they list all the additional specs that you'll need to upgrade on their how to upgrade page. So cool. down here, you have your general requirements and then your feature requirements. So this is all the new stuff that's available in Yosemite. Um, you will notice that some features won't be available on your 2008 Mac Pro, and that's just because you're going to have to upgrade to one of the newer, like 2012 and right. up editions. So sorry about that. But you can run most of the regular default stuff. Were there SATA ports on a 2008 Mac Pro? Good question. I didn't have one because <laughs> I'm like, a PC I can't girl. Remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> Number two <laughs> is from William. He writes, I got a PC for free that I would like to get some better Windows performance out of. It is a Gateway 4 gig DDR3 8 gigs max and an AMD E1 1200 processor with uh -oh. HD 7310 graphics. A PSU is rated at 220 watts. I'm looking for better browsing performance and video playback. Would a low prof profile 6000 series video card be better and help with an additional four gigs of RAM. Thanks, Will. And P.S., I did add a solid-state drive and can boot to Windows 8 in under 20 seconds. So nice. awesome. Um, this is a tough call. First up, when you're trying to speed up an older system, get the latest drivers from AMD, NVIDIA, or Intel for the APU, in your case, for the GPU, uh, and for everything else on the machine. Clean install of your operating system, nothing running in the background. This applies for everybody. It's amazing. I've been rebuilding this, like, seven-year-old system, yeah. and getting the latest drivers from AMD was a huge difference because the drivers that were on there were four years years old. Oh no. <laughs> and amazingly they figured out things to make them faster How long in did that, that four take? years. <laughs> well on, on our DSL <laughs> connection, which is getting replaced tomorrow. Woohoo! Woo! New internet! I'm so excited. Me too. About six hours. <laughs> your mileage may vary. So the E1 1200 in your box uses system memory for the built-in GPU on the APU. Some owners have reported major performance gains by going to eight gigabytes of memory because that four gigabytes Basically, some of it's used for the memory on the, the graphics memory, right? That said, system memory isn't that fast. I might start with a cheap GPU, like you're talking about, then think about going to 8 gigabytes if you're just browsing with a few windows, not like 800 simultaneous video tabs. Uh, windows 8 will do fine with 4 gigabytes, but yes, 8 gigabytes would be better. So cheap uh, GPU, green. then more memory. More memory does amazing things. Yes, it does. It's mm. great when you t can talk your coworkers into giving you more memory for your PC at work. More RAM. <laughs> <laughs> and you kept your printer from dying again? Yeah. Heard? So every so often something happens. Our, our, I probably should stop leaving <laughs> the printer. The, the printer lives directly above our dryer, which oh. means warm air is constantly under the printer, yeah. which is mostly good for electronics. Um, but it tends to dry the print heads out once in a while. So if you look at this, this is a nozzle check after a nozzle test. And you'll see these are all supposed to be these lines. Well, these lines, which are not here, should look like these lines. Ignore the giant yellow splot. So after several <laughs> nozzle cleaning, head cleaning, your printer might have a different name for it. It started to look like this, which is a lot better. But look, there's still, there's still some, some big gaps. Yeah. At which point I pulled out my friend isopropyl alcohol and Q-tips. Put the Q-tips and the alcohol in a jar. Um, I like to clean, basically get alcohol over each of the individual heads that pop into the ink cartridge. And then nice. I scrub the bottom of the ink cartridge. You know, you could also just swap in fresh ink cartridges, but mine's attached to a bulk ink system, oh, so I didn't want to messy. replace it. Yes, yes, it was oh. messy. I also refilled the ink well, uh, and I learned a lot about how to do it the wrong way before I did it the right way. Uh, as you can see, it was very colorful. Um, and always make sure small children are nowhere near. <laughs> 
your inkjet printers, especially if oh, there's no. four gallons of ink outside <laughs> of them. Um, do yourself a favor. Uh, uh, try to get isopropyl, 90% isopropyl alcohol from your local drugstore. I use 70% this time, but 90% isopropyl alcohol has the least amount of water and other things, dries the fastest, and is going to be the most aggressive about cleaning your electronics without cool. harming them. Thanks for your questions, guys. Of course, if you have any questions for us, it can be anything. You can tweet at TechThing, post on Facebook.com slash TechThing, or you can email us, ask at TechThing.com, and we'll do our best to answer it for you. If you'd like to join us as one of our patrons, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash techthing. You can donate however much you want per episode, and every little bit counts. We have lots of goals we want to complete, like keeping the show coming to you each and every week and making it better, and you can make that happen. Don't forget to share the show with your friends and family, and please subscribe to our RSS or our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for supporting TechThing. Hey, something I should point out, the problems we had with the RSS feed last week were actually a problem with the encoding of the files, so I apologize to each and every we're one of sorry. you. We're sorry! Yeah, we screwed up at this end. It was not our CDN, it was not our RSS feed, it was the actual file. We've fixed that. Everything for episode 10 should be working fine, and we have a new process in place for verifying the file before it goes up to the CDN, that's Content Delivery Network. Should you not be down with the alphabet soup of video encoding and delivery? <laughs> um... Man, it's a messy soup. <laughs> but my apologies for the disruption, and it should not happen again. Knock, knock. With that said, Joe writes in, ask at techthing.com. Can you explain the differences in the alphabet soup that is PC memory? Alphabet soup seems to be a theme today. I go and look at sites like Crucial and Corsair and... Uh, TBH, I tend to shop by price because I have no clue what all the gibberish on the screen is. I understand baseball's infield fly rule better than that. For example, 8GB DDR3 PC3 14900 unbuffered non-ECC 1.35 volt 1024MB times 64. What? Thanks and welcome back, Joe. Whew. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. We both read your question and we were like... I love this question. It's something that I never really take a close look at. And I was just thinking to myself, he's got a good point. All I usually pay attention to is DDR3 and what size it is. Well, the thing that made me really laugh was, oh, you didn't even get into <laughs> cast latency issues, dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a huge thing. Wait, Seven. Yeah. So <laughs> random access memory. It's it's the RAM that your, your, your processor writes back and forth to. I probably to. shouldn't bite it. If, as long as you're not going to use it again, chew on no. it all you want. If you pass out, we'll take you to the hospital and tell them you're poisoned. In any case, it's the thing that your operating system is stored on, your programs are stored on. Mm -hmm. Not the hard drive, but basically the CPU goes to the hard drive and loads stuff into main system RAM and then goes back and forth between system RAM and the cache and, da -da -da -da, exactly. and basically moves things back and forth. This so, is moving things back and forth. I'm very like excited. That. Like a little happy bunny. <laughs> So I'll generally, more RAM means more applications can be opened at the yeah. same time and everything's going to run happy and fun and cool times on your PC. And you have to choose RAM that's compatible with your motherboard. <laughs> for example, 8 gigs is the size and DDR3 is the type for your example that you wrote to us. DDR3 is the standard today. Older models were called everything from SD RAM to DDR to DDR2 and even DDR4 was that's released new. in 2014, although we haven't really seen a a lot of them on the market quite yet There's for like PC one building. one chipset that works with DDR4 and, and yeah. most people don't have it. Yeah, so don't worry about DDR4 right now, just stick with DDR3. Right. Now each time a new type is released, it basically doubles the speed from the older models depending on you know which one that you decide to buy. No type will work as a replacement for any other type. Each one is going to have a different set of pins up here, and they're going to be shaped a little right. bit differently. So you don't want to try to replace DDR3 in a motherboard that only right. accepts DDR4 or DDR2, because it's not going to fit. 
<laughs> you're going to run into a little bit of a problem if there. If you make it fit, you, you broke it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the next thing, that PC314900, that's the module name. That's going to be the next part that you'll see in most of the names. This is, for your example, PC314900, that's the RAM with a higher module name generally means that it's also going to be a little bit faster. 14900 RAM has a peak transfer rate of 14,900 megabytes per second. And it's it's so funny, right? Because if you look at, uh, we've like found some pictures oh, like DDR, perfect. DDR2, yeah. DDR3. You can run a faster DDR3 module in a slower motherboard, but you can't True. switch DDR3, DDR2. And of course, then there's SODIM modules, which are the ones you find in laptops. Yeah, those are the little ones for laptops. Yeah. But you can see there's the little slot, and they're all in different locations all different. just to irritate you. Just to irritate you. But at least it keeps you from putting the wrong kind into your motherboard. So it's kind of saving you from having thing. to deal with a problem. Now, if there is a number directly after the DDR3 part, that's going to be its maximum clock rate. Calculated in megahertz. ECC memory is generally used for servers. That's the next part in the title. And then it, it's going to offer you a little bit more stability and security for servers. Non-ECC is generally the one that you want to buy if you're a PC builder like me or like Patrick. It's Patrick. really hard to buy ECC RAM these days. Yes. You only use it for servers or if you're a really hardcore FreeNAS builder, free, it's, it's dead to you for the most yeah. part otherwise. Uh, the 1.35 volts, or V, that's voltage, so that's pretty much self-explanatory. The 1024 megs times 64 looks a little bit weird, but it means it uses a 64-bit data path for a 64-bit motherboard. So if you have a 64-bit MOBO, you want to buy 64-bit data path for your RAM. The 1024 megs indicates the size of the memory chip components on the module. The RAM is built with 8 chips, each with 1024 megs. 1024 megs times 8 chips equals 8 gigs. For example, I have this one, and this one is a total of 4 gigs. Each of these little black things on here, that's a chip. Each chip is 256 megs, so you multiply that by 16 and you get 4 gigs. Huh! Who knew? I know! Yay math! <laughs> it came in handy after I graduated. <laughs> so another thing you might not see in the title would be CAS latency. Uh, so this counts how many clock cycles before delivering the requested data. It's normal to see a CAS latency of anything between like 7 right. to 12, 7 being the fastest because it's latency. You want lower numbers. Back in the day, overclocking memory or going <laughs> to a faster CAS latency, which is the delay time between the moment the controller, blah, 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 used to be able to deliver significant performance improvements. These days, faster memory generally doesn't really deliver much of a performance improvements on real-world programs, and playing around with CAS latency is something best done by a super nerd geeking out. <laughs> um, yes. Because you really want to make sure... Uh, everything is compatible. So true. And lastly, I wanted to show you one thing on my computer. I'm just on Newegg. I searched for a whole bunch of different RAM I options. And there's one on here. It says timing 99924. What the heck does that mean? Can't so, four different digits. These are going to tell you how many clock cycles it takes to do a certain task. And there's four different tasks. So lower numbers are going to be better. If you have one that says 99924, like this one, or the one next to it that just says 999, you might have another one on here. Here we go, 910928. So those are kind of weird. So let's take our 99924 example. That means the cast latency is 9. That's the first number. 
TRCD, or how long it takes between activation of lines and columns, because all the data in RAM is basically lined up like that in the RAM, it's going to also take nine clock cycles. TRP, or how long it takes to disable one line and begin a new line of data, is also nine. And then TRAS is how long the memory has to wait till it can actually access more data, and that's going to be 24 cycles. So lower is better. So now you know, and you can go over to Newegg or TigerDirect or your local micro center or wherever the heck you want to go, and you can buy RAM because you fully understand what all those freaky numbers mean. Congratulations. Well done. <laughs> I got really excited. It was like reading a special handbook all about RAM. Yeah, the best part is when you get a RAM stick out of an old machine and it's fallen off because the glue's fallen off the paper. Oh, no. If you get really lucky, there will be identifying marks or FCC marks on it that will help you to search True. online to find it. Mushkin, with nice RAM. Linus writes in, hello, Tech Thing. I love your show. I followed you when you had the show called Techzilla. Thank you, Linus. Now to the question, what are you thinking about the Pebble smartwatch? Ooh. Regards, Linus in Sweden. Shannon who covets yes. a stylish and sophisticated smartwatch is going to take this one on. What can I say? I like my style because you can be styly and geeky at the same time. You don't want to pay like $350 so you can talk at your watch for you two know, hours? You know, to be honest, a Moto 360, it's just way too big for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So Pebble's back. They have a Kickstarter going on again. I have this pulled up on my computer. It's the new Pebble smartwatch called No Compromises. I, I love that it's like 19 million pledged. I know. Eight, no, Crazy. $500,000 Nine days to go. I think they reached their goal. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so this time they have color e-paper instead of black. It's seven days of battery life and a timeline interface. And I'll speak about that in a bit. Uh, they also have it labeled as a new title. It's mm -hmm. called the Pebble Time. It has a microphone built in, which is great. So you can actually talk to it. It has uh, water resistance, just like the original. It's customizable with all the existing applications because there's like thousands of them. And they also have a version called the Pebble Time Steel, which is the more expensive one with stainless steel casing and a nice leather band, 10 days of battery, and you know, a steel strap also comes with it. So it looks really clean. It's a really nice, neat interface. Um, they, I like the color on it. I'm really curious about this timeline interface because they say it's supposed to generate all your information for the day into one nice long schedule, and you can mm -hmm. just scroll up and look at each thing, which I think would really help with productivity. Uh, the straps, not a big fan of. They <laughs> are not really stylish, to be honest. Uh, they, I don't think they would look good on my teeny tiny wrists. I'm also a little iffy about spending $300 on a smartwatch, I'm really curious to see if this well, would be something that would increase my productivity other than just looking cool. You, you get it for $179 if you buy it now, unless yes. you want the steel one, in which case it gets a lot more expensive. I, I would want the steel. Of course you would. <laughs> of course I would. Oh <laughs> I have a bad feeling I'm going to have to buy an Apple Watch to test that. Yeah, you might. I'll buy the Apple Watch. You buy the Pebble. Okay. You'll be happier with your watch. I'll be irritated, and then I'll sell it on eBay. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> we got some great feedback from y'all after we had Life Hackers Alan Henry on last week to talk virtual private networks. 
Fritz writes in, I think it's important to note that the user's security concerns may be greater using VPNs. Whatever the VPN service provider, the hundreds of servers available through the provider may not be under direct control of the provider. That means that at the very least, HTTP requests are clear text to the service as are the responses. As a consequence, the responses are trivially vulnerable to injection attacks at the server. Ultimately, the user must be an active participant in maintaining his or her privacy. Don't rely on a VPN or any product to do that job for you. Disclaimer, I'm no security expert, although I have read nothing to assure me that HTTP is safe from a malicious VPN server. Regards, Fritz. This is why I log into Google and HTTPS. I launched into, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's why Gmail for default is HTTPS. This yep. is why YouTube is HTTPS. And one of the things a lot of smart companies have done is create a secure connection between mm -hmm. their server and your server, no matter what's in between. It can get more complicated, and yes, you should always be concerned, but the better VPNs are probably, using any of the better VPNs is probably a thousand times better than being like, I'm in the hotel here in Atlanta, <laughs> and I'm I'm going to connect to my bank. I'm Absolutely. not saying your security <laughs> is going to be compromised, but you're much more likely to get your ass kicked, say, whether it's Atlanta, New York, Las Vegas. People do terrible things to hotel internet networks. Not a big deal if you're just doing a little <laughs> Netflix, but if you actually need to do something like keep your business secure while you're using critical online features, well, one of the things you can do is connect to your cell phone, that'll help, or make sure you have some kind of VPN. No, it is not the ultimate answer. Yes, you have to be, you know, take your own, I get excited. Yeah, so, you have to be responsible, but still. Yeah, you do. Almost any VPN is better than dealing with the connection between your laptop and like the hotel or coffee shop internet. Yeah. But there's, we actually have Darren in here at the studio right now, and he's sitting back there nodding his head while we were reading your email, and he's just like, yep, you, you got it. You just can't fully trust him. You can't. So assume that HTTP, for example, that's never going to be safe. It's really, really, really easy for someone to sniff your packets on your network whenever you're yeah. using HTTP. I recently learned how to do exactly just this with software called Wireshark, which apparently you can also use over SSH to capture awesome. usernames and passwords yeah. on HTTP. And it's so super simple. They all show up in clear text. And this is a really, really nice article that I also wanted to link you guys to. It's called, How Do I Know If My VPN Is Trustworthy? And yeah. guess what? It's by Alan Henry. <laughs> and it's all about what you should look for when you're searching for a VPN, what you should email them and ask them about your VPNs. So just you know, do some research before you choose a VPN to make sure that you're getting yeah. security and privacy, not just one or the other. Yeah, if nobody okay, I'm done with my tangent. <laughs> I'll try not to get all worked up on this one. Mike from Facebook.com slash TechFig posted, love the latest episode, guys, but you forgot to mention TeamViewer as one of the free VPN software choices. I use it for work all the time, and it is great. Lots of cool features, like copy file from your system, paste file to the computer you're tunneling into. Although it does have a nag buy screen open up after every use, it is still a great free VPN tool to use. I would like to see you guys do a comparison, by the way, of the Banana Pi versus the Raspberry Pi 2. In my opinion, the Banana Pi is everything that the Raspberry Pi should have been and needs to be. I want to check out the Raspberry or the Banana Pi Pro. The Pro. Pro. Yeah, because that's, that's the hardcore right. one that has all the extra bits and pieces. But yeah, thank you for the information on VP, uh, TeamViewer VPN. It sounds pretty cool. I've never used TeamViewer VPN. Uh, you know, it's 
We've used so many VPNs over the years, it all kind of bleeds together. Very true. Oh, my goodness. Hey, thank you guys all for your emails. And uh, Shannon, how do people join in and become a part of the show? Oh, my gosh, all the ways. You can email us. You can post it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tech thing. We do want to hear from you yeah. because you guys have tons and tons of great ideas and lots and lots of feedback, and we love that stuff. There are tens of thousands of you. There are two of us. Yes. Let's all make an amazing <laughs> show that we can enjoy together. Hey, that wraps up this episode of Tech Thing. If you like it, please subscribe at techthing.com or youtube.com slash tech thing. You don't need to see anymore. YouTube.com slash tech thing. And before we go, have you backed up your system or your phone lately? If not, go do it right now. Put on a hard drive. And remember, <laughs> once in a while, put down the phone, step away from the screen, close mm -hmm. the laptop, and do something analog, like watching for the International Space Station. It's so true. You can literally <laughs> go outside at night on a clear night, and you can watch the International Space Station go overhead. We don't usually cover a lot of Kickstarters, even right. though we've covered one on this show. Two now. <laughs> but this is one I've been following for years. It's called the ISS Above Project. It allows a little Raspberry Pi to tweet and light up whenever the ISS is orbiting Earth directly above you. So cool. So this new one, the software connects to the webcams on the ISS that are directed towards Earth, so you can see exactly what the astronauts are seeing on your television. And Liam Kennedy, he's the guy that created the project, uh, he just introduced this new one. It's on Kickstarter. He's at 5800 bucks as of recording. Four days to go. I hope they reach their goal. This one has a wearable component, so it'll also light up whenever your ISS is above you. That's so cool. You can like blink, literally blink, walk blink. around with a wearable. And you can see whenever it's lighting up, so you don't have to take your pie with you. You can just wear your wearable. So this is pack. super cool. It's, it's big, because I'm a big space nerd. Like, I used to be a part of the Ozark Amateur Astronomers Club when I was a kid. You're a small space nerd, but... Slightly, yeah. You, your nerdery is big. Your size yeah. is small. Did you back the project? <laughs> I did. I backed the project. I'm hoping to get a wearable in as long as they reach How their goal. It? it ends on Sunday. Uh, you can get the simple one. For let's see, fifty bucks if you already have some of the parts. Okay. Uh, I backed the one at ninety dollars because I already have the Raspberry Pi, so that's the one I'm that's hoping the to get. One. Yep, it's the wearable one. Wear space. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm Barry Norton. I'm Shannon Morse. We'll see you next week on Tech Thing. I'm a Cylon. They're right here. Who's your favorite patient that's going on? Um, that one. Yeah, what about the other one? Okay. He's cool. <gasps> oh my gosh, you have? Who's the thing? Nice. You play rugby, He's cool. you see a lot of people naked. Good guy. Dude, what's up, man? Bob. Hey. She's cool. George. Yeah. Amazing work. Super cool. Thanks to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for supporting us. We can do the show for you. Yes. You guys rock. You do. We love you. No. Yeah, but it's not going to help you because there's cameras everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and you still got to get out of the desert. You do. Should you clear the security inside <laughs> the casino? Or Shannon, you should bulk up. Okay. I know. If I take it, does that help if I take a half step? Well, you need, you need a drone that can lift a man that is not going to show up on radar. <laughs>